The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Project Nerd as a whole. I could let them know about about the sorrow and the happiness that the future has in store for them. Maybe they could learn from it. Let's dive deep. Let's dive right in. We're going to dive deep into this. Let's deep dive into this. This is Diving Deep. This is Diving Deep. This is Diving Deep. Welcome to another episode of Diving Deep, the show that allows me, Iggy, a chance to rant without making my parents too angry at me. I mean, unless, of course, they end up listening. And in that case, hey, mom. I do want to thank you very much for making the last episode of Diving Deep a huge hit. Our Conspiracy Theories episode, if you haven't checked it out, is now one of our most listened to podcasts in 2020. And it's only been out for a couple weeks. It's all about conspiracy theories, and maybe the title itself has drove people from both sides of the conspiracy theory aisle to listen to it. Either way, it breaks down a number of things about this year's conspiracy theories, the president's driving of those conspiracy theories, and of course, ways we can lessen those. Other topics recently, though, have included institutional racism, the Supreme Court, but all of those topics really come down to what we're going to talk about today, and that is voting. That's right, we are less than a week from the 2020 election, and it has been all over the place. I know friends of mine are getting burnt out as they're tired of seeing me post stuff on social media, and a number of other people are getting tired of it, but we shouldn't be, because there's a lot of reasons of why we need to be talking about voting, and more importantly, why voting is important. Let's start with a fact. In the last five presidential elections, Four of those, the Democrat candidate has actually won the popular vote. But three of those five terms has resulted in a Republican serving as president. This includes in 2016, when Hillary Clinton won by roughly 3 million votes over the now-serving Donald Trump. But that's just the presidential race. We can add the fact that the Republican Party has gained majority control in the Senate without actually having the majority of support. This has dominoed control into other branches, starting in 2014 when Mitch McConnell began blocking federal judge appointments by the Obama administration, allowing Trump to appoint more than 240 federal judges in his first term, now including three Supreme Court justices. This allowed the Republican Party-controlled Senate to work in conjunction with a corrupt and destructive president over the past few years to change or block legislation that polls frequently show the majority of Americans actually want changed or different than what they've decided. And they have done all of this without ever actually earning the majority vote. So how does a Democrat party that has more than 15 million people in their states and supporting them show up as the minority compared to the Republican majority in places like the Senate? That's because the Senate awards two seats to every state, no matter the population, And in situations such as the Supreme Court and many other things that are at a federal level, the less powerful House of Representatives is the one that awards seats based on population. Yet your parents in the South and their ignorant boomer friend Mitt Romney may tell you that this country is center-right, but a national Gallup poll has shown this consistently for years, that more Americans identify as Democrat or Democrat-leaning than as Republican or Republican-leaning. And as recent Pew Search study shows, that Democrats registered to vote outnumber Republican registered voters by 7%. This is just regarding votes on the Senate and the President. 
It doesn't even include the fact that Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico remain unrepresented in that Senate. And there are two territories that combine to have roughly 4 million American citizens voting, many of which are minorities. So it may feel that I'm spending the first five minutes of this podcast telling you that your vote doesn't matter. A war cry that will be said all year and in many elections to come. And a war cry that I will bring up again throughout this podcast. But that's not true. Your vote matters and it matters very much. And I'm going to spend the next 30 to 45 minutes telling you exactly why it does. Republican, Democrat, Independent, unregistered affiliate, or just unregistered, your vote does matter. Your voice needs to be heard. And we will talk heavily everywhere, including in this podcast, about the presidential election. But 2020 has so many things on the ballot, local, state, and federal, that you can make an impact on. Just case in point, some states have legislation that could decide for them to move away from the unevenly weighted electoral college and towards picking a president based on the popular vote. I could give you a list of a million reasons why voting is important, and I'm going to give you many. But I'm going to start with just this one. Only 65% or roughly 65% of the voting eligible population turned out to vote in a presidential election in 2016. And when that happens, you end up with a very close result that allows parties who don't actually represent the majority of Americans or the popular vote to gain and retain full political power. I'm a registered independent voter. My parents who live in the South may call me liberal, but overall, I'm pretty middle of the road. Outside of having a strong social view that's based around taking care of others and this planet, for the most part, I kind of fall all over the place. Your takeaway from this can be whatever you want it to be, but this episode, I'm going to make sure you know up front that I'm neither a Republican or a Democrat. There are some major concerns with Donald Trump's poisonous rhetoric leading up to the election, as well as the Republican Party doing all they can to bully legislation and laws that do not line up with what the majority of the people in this country want. Our world is falling into turmoil, and the Republican Party, pretty much as a whole, is ignoring that. If you do stand on the conservative side, I may come off a little biased, but I do ask for you to open your mind a little and listen to a different perspective. If you find it in yourself to tag along on this journey, you'll find we are going to discuss ahead of this upcoming monumental election some of the system built, both political and social, that continue to leverage one party over another, the trend of the low voter turnout and the likelihoods behind it, as well as what's at play this year in the 2020 election among other voting data and details. But I'm going to get started with a quick political lesson about how America is not actually a democracy, at least not in the context you think it is. A democracy is defined as a system of government ran by the whole population or all the eligible members of the state, meaning every person gets a say in what laws are put in place, who makes those laws, and actually anything else that is really up for deciding on a national level. This is not how the United States of America operates. The United States is actually an elected representative. This is a system in which officials are elected by the public, as in national elections for the national legislator. Elected representatives may hold the power to select other representatives, presidents, other officers of the government, or legislation. They also hold the power to create laws and other things that can change their own power, meaning the system is set up to where we pick people that make decisions for us. 
And no, it's it's not that cut and dry. There's processes, there's state government within the federal government, and there's branches of the government meant to keep balance of other branches. It's really a very complicated and complicated mess, really, when you start to break it down. Much like the last season of Game of Thrones, really. But this elected representative setup has allowed us to put in place practices and a system that over time has grown to favor one party over another. And if that sounds like a conspiracy theory I made up, I challenge you to listen to that last episode of Diving Deep I already referenced, as well as continue to listen to what I have to say here. The system in place, starting with the Electoral College, very much favors the Republican Party. More accurately, it actually favors the lower populated states in the South and Midwest, which in turn favor the GOP party. The Electoral College is a body of electors established by the United States Constitution, which forms every four years for the sole purpose of electing the president and vice president of the United States. These electors represent our 50 states and only our 50 states. Much like Senate representation, U.S. territories are again not included in this process. Without turning this podcast into a multi-episode miniseries better suited for showtime, we'll be frank and quick on the Electoral College, mainly stating that it's outdated and it sucks. According to fairvote.org, if the Electoral College was properly allocated based on voting age eligible population, the oft-Democrat-leaning state of California would have 6% more weight, while the frequently GOP-backing state of Montana would have 59% less weight. In fact, of the states that vote in favor of Trump, more than half of them should have less electoral college power or weight if it were properly allocated by current population. This includes states like Alaska, Wyoming, and North Dakota, three states that have more than 200% electoral college power based on their population. This allows rural voters, who tend to lean more conservative, to have a considerable amount more power than those that reside in more heavily populated states. To break this down further, it's not this simple, but to put it kind of into a context. If I vote in North Dakota, my vote weighs roughly 200% more than a vote in California. Is that fair? Is that unbiased? Whether that leans Republican or Democrat, Again, it is an outdated and bizarre system. And it's just one federally established system of many that support these rural voters to have more control. Much like the Electoral College, the states all have an equal representation on the Senate floor. And much like the states identified above, those more rural states essentially then have more voting power when considering Senate representation. This is a well-known fact. This, again, is not something being made up. And if you mix it with the fact that the two-party favored system that both parties work so hard to establish, you end up with a large number of voters who sit on that mentality that their vote doesn't matter, and therefore they don't show up to vote, and you end up with a 65% turnout. That message spreads more rapidly within the ranks of each younger generation that becomes voting eligible. Generation X checked out. Millennials will cry about it online, but vote even less. And are we setting that failure up for the next generation? It's not just the Electoral College that really spreads that message, though, and kind of makes it seem unfair. There's a lot of social constructs and systems that also have led to low voter turnouts. Let's be honest with ourselves. On a generational level, we are failing outside of the older generation that tends to vote, show up and vote. We're lazy, we're selfish, we're whatever 
we're not all identified as the same, but there's usually something that makes us stay away. It all comes really from us being tired of this. Our generation grew up being told political conversation is not polite, all while the boomer generation pushed for us to be their clones. As they saw the benefits of Reaganomics, millennials and Generation Z were hung out to dry by big corporations that had finally capitalized on the deregulation of capitalism, not to mention a number of other things that Reagan and Nixon put into place. Add in every few months a horrendous occurrence that has desensitized us to nearly all catastrophic or life-changing events. Bring it all around to the fact that we have an everyday war against racism, sexism, and bigotry that should have never been a war, especially one that's not still waging today. Listen, we're tired. Generation X, millennials, Generation Z, we live in a different world than the boomers do. It's a bad excuse, I get it, but it's true one nonetheless. Younger voters don't turn out because they've been programmed, either by being told or by losing battles, that we should have never had to fight in the first place. That we just can't win. This is probably the most destructive social system of many that leads to low voter turnout, and it leads to less than 65% of the voting eligible population to actually turn out in major elections. It's not fair that we have to be responsible for fixing mistakes people so eagerly accepted when we were infants. But it is our responsibility, and it's a responsibility that starts at the polls. Depending on where you live, your race and gender, your background, your economic positioning, these are all just a handful of systems, both political and social, put in place to cause low voter turnout. Some of them are designed to purposely impact it, and others just created by the way the last few decades have played out. It's all just the tip of an iceberg that goes much deeper. We haven't even covered inner city voter suppression, the lies and agendas of Trump's campaign to dismiss mail-in voting, a pandemic that heavily impacts primary turnouts this year, and the countless other things that are popping up in your head as you listen to this. The system is built to keep those turnouts low because that leads to the representation we have right now. 30%, 20%, hell, just 10% greater turnout could have drastically changed 2016, 2018, and it could wildly impact 2020. One vote doesn't make the difference, right? Well, let's take a look at that. In terms of the popular vote, Hillary Clinton finished with a very large, nearly 3 million vote margin in her win in 2016. But due to that aforementioned electoral college, those 3 million votes did nothing to put Clinton in the White House. In fact, millions more could have voted for Clinton and it still may not have made a difference. Hillary's lead only gave her 227 of the needed 270 electoral college votes to be elected. But imagine if millions more turned out and voted, pushing that electoral college in the other direction. Imagine if just hundreds of thousands of people hadn't sat here thinking their vote didn't matter. States such as Florida and Arizona gave a total of 40 electoral college votes to Donald Trump. Had those 40 gone to Clinton, she now stands at just three points shy of reaching that 270 milestone. Nationally, of eligible voters in the Hispanic community, less than 50% of them turned out to vote. In a state like Arizona, where Trump won by less than 100,000 voters, the state is home to 2.1 million Hispanics, 3.7 of all Hispanics in the United States, actually. Of note, Florida also was decided by roughly 100,000 votes. Take all that. 
And let's add in Michigan's 16 electoral college votes. Another state Trump won by less than 100,000 votes. And imagine 300,000 people from those three states, which is less than 0.09% of the U.S. population, had turned out to actually vote 2016. The results could have been wildly different. But this isn't just about swing states and certain races and uh, presidential elections. And the more often liberal-leaning Colorado, the junior senator seat belongs to Republican Cory Gardner. Gardner won that seat in 2014 midterms by less than 50,000 votes. And that happened in an election where just 55% of eligible voters turned out that year to vote. And for those of you that don't reside in Colorado, Gardner is a notoriously out-of-touch, radically conservative Trump disciple. He's voted against affordable health care, against gun restrictions, and nearly always votes on party lines even though his state is not conservative-leaning and has a majority that often pleads for him not to actively on social media and through phone calls and emails. When we're talking about 100,000, 50,000 vote differences, which across those three states in 2016 accounted for less than nine one hundredths of a percentage of the population, it's safe to say that one vote can truly make a difference. This is incredibly true when millions of citizens not exercising their right to vote all realize that it can make a difference in one single election. So saying that the votes matter, what's at stake in 2020? Well, obviously, Trump versus Biden takes center stage, but Trump doesn't get to spend his four years running over laws in the Constitution without a Republican-led Senate and his biggest ally, Mitch McConnell. Much like the previously mentioned Gardner, McConnell has served since 2014 and has proven himself loyal to Trump even at the expense of the country, his state, and even his party. McConnell's seat is in danger, however, with Amy McGrath looking to unseat him. Additionally, Martha McSally in Arizona is on the hot seat with astronaut, engineer, and former U.S. Navy Captain Mark Kelly eyeing a win for the Democrats. And going back to Gardner in Colorado, he faces the same threat with former Colorado Governor Democrat John Hickenlooper being put in position to potentially take the state's junior seat. Those are the three most hotly contested seats, or three of the most hotly contested seats in the Senate race. All three are possibly unseatings of Republicans. Let me remind you that Republicans hold the Senate majority with a marginal 53 of 100 seats. Uh, Let's be honest, McConnell's likely not going to lose, but Gardner and McSally are definitely a possibility. And there are three to four other seats that are likely to flip. So for those that want change, 538 is projecting a 61% chance that Democrats will take control of the Senate in this election. But those projections mean nothing again if people don't actually turn out to vote. If the Democrats sweep the election in November, the changes we could see over the next four years include a list of very impactful moves. Immediate relief would be more available for all or most Americans during this pandemic. This includes better support with unemployment and health care. We could see changes long term to the private health care system, maybe even a better plan for universal health care. There would undoubtedly be a reversal of legislation around environmental laws, as Trump has spent four years rolling back regulations, opening up federally protected land for development and drilling, and putting doubt about facts and science around climate change in the heads of adults everywhere. Again, these things we could see turned over or even ended. 
The school loan crisis would no longer be an afterthought and would be put front and center. Sanders and Elizabeth Warren may not have won the Democrat Party ticket, but the past six years have allowed them to create major change within the party when it comes to the cost of higher education, both for those with existing loans and those soon to head off to school. We could possibly see the radically conservative Supreme Court expanded, allowing not only for a balance to come to it in the immediate future, but the potential for greater representation of America's citizens with future appointments showing a more diverse appointment. Maybe a change in November even leads to term limits set for Congress, something both parties have actually entertained. And it could even lead to the amending or elimination of the Electoral College, an outdated system that needs huge reform. The 2020 election has so much at stake and change in power could put the wheels in motion for more radical change we so desperately need in this country. All those things I just mentioned would be controlled by the Senate. But again, we have the ability to change what the Senate is doing in the near future. And we're talking plenty about the people representing us in Washington, D.C. But I'll spend some more time talking about that race for the White House in in a little bit. But another reason to vote is for the many things happening right in your home city and state, things that you can directly control. In Colorado, the state can make abortion illegal after the 22nd week of pregnancy with very little language to protect from extreme or pre-existing circumstances. The state is also the first one to put government-funded family leave support on a ballot statewide. We could head to California, where we have one of the most advertised and expensive ballot measures in a state history, a measure that could see Uber and Lyft drivers, amongst others, in California be reclassified as employees and be subject to a wage floor. Things that could impact those services we use now on a daily basis, food delivery services, driving services, in the state of California like never before. Florida could open up their primaries and even implement a top-two primary election system, meaning that the battleground states' marquee races in 2022 and beyond could see two Republicans or two Democrats facing off against one another in the general election, depending on how the primaries go. Alaska and Massachusetts could join Maine in using statewide ranked choice voting, a system that is far superior to the winner-take-all system we currently use. In the ever-changing war on drugs, more traditionally conservative states are deciding on changes around marijuana laws, including those along the Gulf of Mexico. Oregon's even voting on the legalization of magic mushrooms. And finally, many states are voting on a proposition that would have their electoral college votes reflect the national popular vote instead of the state's popular vote, another proposition that agencies and political groups are spending plenty of money and time to influence. This is just a fraction of what's out there across the 50 states next week, a fraction of things that all of us have power to influence. But besides all of those things we have direct an immediate influence on. There is that one race everybody is talking about and will be talking about long past next Tuesday, November 3rd. In an election where mail-in and absentee voting will be higher than ever, it's likely we won't have a declared winner the night of the election for the first time in a long time, something Trump is already selling his base to prepare for in the worst of ways. Trump has made it clear he will not accept the results if he doesn't win, slowly sowing in seeds of doubt to his followers over the past few months, telling them outrageous lies about mail-in voting fraud, pushing his followers to act as vigilantes at the polling places to keep voters, quote, honest, and as an honest, a way that supports his party. Trump's tall tales around mail-in voting is not even close to the truth. Voter fraud is extremely rare and carries a large legal penalty. 
penalty. During an analysis of voter fraud cases conducted by the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank even, it was found that only 143 cases of criminal convictions involved absentee ballots occurred over the last 20 years. Not just in the last election, but the last 20 years. That amounts to 0.00006% of total votes cast. And your Trump-supporting relative who has a friend from high school that got a ballot for the family member that passed months before any ballots were sent out is not telling you the truth. The lies have to stop. And the only way to stop that is to overwhelm the polls with votes. Votes specific to what this country wants and needs going forward. All right. We're here. Let's all take a deep breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. The election is up to us. All of us. And it's almost here. And when we talk presidential election, there's really three possible outcomes. Trump wins because people didn't turn up to vote. Biden wins because people did. Or the third option, a very likely option, it's close or even a draw. A close win for Biden, however, doesn't eliminate the possibility for Trump to take the election. And I don't just mean that by popular vote. A close win for Biden, the Electoral College, could also mean this. If the vote is close, the Supreme Court or the House of Representatives get to choose the final outcome, something Trump is heavily relying on and preparing for. If it comes down to just one state pushing Biden over the 270, which again is very possible, Trump's frequent lies and misdirecting comments will have enough people to jump up and question it, allowing an honest decision to be put in front of the court that Trump has now rushed three justices to serve on. But if the people overwhelm the polls, there's no reason for the Supreme Court to be involved. Take a minute and remember, although Donald Trump has played by his own set of rules for him to actually steal an election, it will take thousands of people breaking the law. Laws that include years of time served in federal prison. Laws that people, even on Trump's side, don't want to break. Trump and the Senate cannot change the electorates at the state level. States have control over who is selected, and thanks to the Supreme Court back in 2000, those had to be selected long before we got to right here and the election. And although Pence will oversee the House symbolically counting and confirming the Electoral College votes, he has no power or sway to actually change anything that is all really for show in the first place. If Trump's win, if Trump wins, it'll be because people didn't turn up to vote, at least not enough people. If Trump loses, it'll be because the people, you, spoke up and made your voice heard. He can cry, he can sue, he can lie, he can get white supremacy groups in the streets to march. But as long as the people of this nation stand firm and show up in mass, he won't be able to steal this election. Listen, change is coming. I, like the majority, think that the greater good of the community not only outweighs the greater good of the individual, but also lifts us as individuals. The majority of us believe in science. We know everybody has the right to love whoever they love, and we think the color of one's skin or the gender someone was born as or chooses to identify as doesn't determine the quality of person they are. This is true for many on both sides of the political aisle. But if we're being honest, one side has lost its way. There's no reasoning within this party. There's no standing up for faith or what's right. There isn't a Republican party anymore. There's Trump's party. He discredits anybody who disagrees with him, even if they hold facts. He overwhelms people with inconceivable lies to bury truths. He and the group of politicians that 
frequently side with him, sell a false rhetoric of a radical or all nothing on the left. I don't just believe what I'm told without investigating, though. And I don't believe that it goes against one's countries to call out our problematic truths. In fact, I think you prove yourself more of a patriot to stand up and say, we need to fix these things to make our country better and safer for everybody. November 3rd is where we do that. That's where we stand up. We have a long way to go to fixing this country and its political system. I know, I know, the first step doesn't look and sound that exciting. Typically, with things of this nature, the first steps never really are, though. But removing Trump, McConnell, and other many selfish and corrupt individuals from office starts opening doors for us to better take care of each other and this planet. Democrat, Republican, Independent, we should all want those doors open. Because in the end, our decision this November doesn't just impact us, it impacts our children and our children's children. Those wonderful young people that are wondering what's ahead for them as they watch this circus this year and in the last four years. But no matter your reason for voting, you need to find one and you need to run with it. It can be for Trump. It can be against Trump. It can be for one of those many, many things that we've talked about on the state, local, or even federal level. Find your reason to vote and stand behind it and vote. That's it for this episode of Diving Deep. Hi, pro nerds. We'd love to get your feedback on the new format of Diving Deep. The scripts for Diving Deep take a considerable amount of time to write, including editing, fact-checking, and read-throughs. So if you like or don't like what we're doing now, come back to us, drop us a line at projectnerd.com or wherever you get your Project Nerd podcast to share why and what we can do differently or more of. And for all the great podcasts found across the Project Nerd Podcast Network, visit projectnerd.com slash podcast. That's project-nerd.com slash podcasts. 